following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning we're going to pick up on the theme that Tim began last week, which is our, our philosophy of ministry, our vision and mission statement here at the church, that we say that our church uh, is a church that exists to see lives transformed by the power uh, of God, by the power of the gospel. And we say that we are a gospel-centered community of disciple-making disciples that celebrate God together in worship, that we renew our hearts and minds through the power of his word, that we live in deep community with one another, and that we serve the needs of others. And so when we come and we talk about a transformed life, that's what we are talking about, that it's a life that is transformed not by our own initiative, but by the power of the gospel in us. And so this week and next week, we're going to take uh, two of those four pillars of our vision statement. This week, we'll be looking at celebration and service. Uh, next week, of deep community and of renewal. And looking at these and asking, how is it that we see these developed within our lives as believers and so uh, this week, the text that I'm going to use, it's not uh, written in your bulletin. We're going to get to those two texts, but uh, by way uh, of introduction to pick up and reinforce what Tim uh, was talking about last week of being new creations in Christ Jesus, uh, created for good works, that we are transformed in that way. I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 through 18. And I was reminded again this week of a differentiation that we make with who we are uh, versus many other churches within our country and within the world. I was reading um, an article by a pastor that I respect very much, and he uh, visited a mainline church in his hometown, and he, out of honor, didn't name the church, but simply said as he was there and listened as the word of God was read, uh, the statement from the clergy was simply this, now listen for the word of God. Folks, we'll never say that because within that is a statement, a very powerful statement that says you can listen for it, but there's also parts of this that aren't the word of God. And so as we come to God's word each week, we say that this is the very word of God. All of it inspired and breathed by him for us. And so we come humbly now to his word. And we ask that he would add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that, remains, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So if our 
vision statement is simply that we want to see lives transformed by the power of the gospel by way of introduction uh, into our talk about these other things of seeing that transformation in a life of worship and celebration and a life of serving others. We need to understand and reinforce what it means to have a transformed life and how that's transformed by the gospel. We talk and distinguish between transforming our lives versus conforming our behavior. That we want to see hearts that are transformed, hearts that are renewed by the gospel, hearts that are recreated by uh, the gospel. Behavioral modification is simple. Apply law. Uh, Apply rules and you can uh, make behavior change. It's one thing if you were getting on the Cross Island Parkway today and you're going along and the town puts up a little sign uh, and it shows you your speed limit as you go by. That might be a little bit of a deterrent that you'd recognize I'm going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit and you might slow down. But if the town uh, put a police officer sitting in a squad car, they're ready to go with the engine going and that if you popped over the proper speed limit on the Cross Island Parkway, he was going to pull you over and give you a $200 ticket and four points on your license. Do you think your behavior would change? Every teenager goes, no. Every adult's going, yeah, our behavior would change. But the heart wouldn't change. You've just changed behavior. Because as soon as there's no police car and as soon as there's no consequence uh, to the action, very often our behavior goes back to what it was before because there's been no transformation. So what we distinguish and what we talk about is this word that's used here Uh, within Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. And he says that we are transformed into the same image. It's the very same word that's used of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. That Christ was transfigured, Christ was transformed uh, from his uh, earthly state into his glorified body. It it was a total metamorphosis uh, of who he was. He was not the same. And it's the same for us that as we come into relationship with Jesus Christ through the gospel, through Christ as the only entrance point, the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by him. No one enters into this transforming uh, relationship except through Christ, that we are totally different, that something has transpired, excuse me, that what's transpired uh, is this, you encounter Christ. And the gospel message of Christ is this, that you are saved not of your own works, but by Christ's work on your behalf. And so this transformation that happens with us is twofold. There's the first transformation, which we would call justification. That is, when we proclaim and say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I give to Him all of my sin, and I receive from Him His righteousness, and now that justification has taken place, the incredible transaction of the gospel, whereby all of our stuff has been given to Christ. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, so that we who were sinful now become the very righteousness of God. That what takes place in the midst of that is now accredited to your account. Your account and your debt isn't just paid in full and you now have an empty account. No, your account is paid in full by Christ, but then replenished by Christ with His full righteousness. 
So that when you stand before God, God views you fully righteous, justified, just as if I'd never done anything wrong. That's the beauty of that transformation. And that's the entrance point that has to take place first. That's why we constantly and regularly preach Christ at every stage along the way in the ministries of this church. For it is through Christ alone, not through your effort, but in giving all of your effort and finally laying it down and saying, I finally believe in you and I trust in you. And this happens. And now you are justified. You are adopted. Uh, you are now standing with him, sons and daughters of the king. And guess what? It's all done, right? You're the, the best that you'll ever be, right? Of course not. Some of you are going, yeah, no, no. That's, that was, that's a no answer to that one. Because you now need to enter into this second idea of transformation that we would call sanctification. That now you have been justified, but you and I are still dealing uh, with the effects of the fall within our lives. The illustration I used so many times uh, that I heard from my father was this. If you have the biggest jerk in your community on Saturday and he happens to wander into a gospel-believing church and hears the gospel preached on a Sunday morning, commits his life to Christ, and is transformed, is justified at that moment, guess what you have on Monday? You have a Christian jerk. Because he's got to be renewed He's got to be sanctified, transformed over the course of time. His mind has to be transformed. His lifestyle has to be transformed. But that we are changing. It is a process, the first justification, an act of God's free grace by which we are declared righteous, God doing all of it. Sanctification, that transforming, a cooperative work between us and the Holy Spirit. And I know that some of you are going, okay, what's the division? Is it 50-50, 60-40, 70-30? What is it? It's 100 and 100. It's 100% the work of God in your life and 100% your effort to see this change. I take every thought captive. I beat my body into submission. I work. I run the race. I fight the battle. I do all this, all the language that Paul and Peter and the others were using of seeing that cooperative work of transformation within the life of the believer. And so we are transformed. And we're transformed in this way, in our moral character, in our knowledge of the mind, in our gifts and abilities. All of those things being used for God. We are no longer who we used to be. You're different than you used to be. One of my very first sermons in, was in Charlotte at the chapel at Queens University and a bunch of my high school buddies were there and some of their parents were there because they wanted to see this knucklehead Bill McCutcheon uh, who they knew as a teenager and they knew as a frat boy had all of a sudden had this life-changing event with Jesus Christ and he'd given his life to Christ and had left banking uh, and was now going to be a minister and they wanted to hear him preach and so I was there preaching and I'm sure it was a horrible sermon but I tried all that I could because I out of seminary and even in seminary there really are bad sermons that we preach but we try and one of the guys afterwards stood up and he said I just wanted to say I knew you when I wanted to go yeah but I'm not him anymore I'm not the 16 year old Bill McCutcheon who rejected Christ I'm not the 18 year old Bill McCutcheon who rejected Christ I'm not the 21 year old Bill McCutcheon who rejected Christ I'm the 23 year old Bill McCutcheon or 24 I don't remember how old I was that loves Christ now and I'm different than I was and if you can't see it then it begs the question that maybe there's been no change but they said we do see it and we don't understand it but we see it 
Folks, if there's no change in your life, if there's no substantive change of transformation happening in your life, please ask the hard questions. And the hard question is this, have you ultimately encountered Christ? Have you been initially transformed by that justifying work? Because where Christ takes up residence within you, it changes you. You're metamorphosized. You, you are different than you were. Not perfect, by the way. I've still got a lot of work to do in my life, and the Lord hadn't given up on me yet. Praise God for that. And the same with you. But there is a sense of that cooperative work, and we are transformed by the power of the gospel. It's the second part of our statement. The gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It is that proclamation of these things. It is recognizing that Jesus Christ is the ABC, the entrance into relationship and the XYZ of how we are transformed. That it is the good news of the gospel that we preach to ourselves. Uh, that we come and we allow God to do His work within our lives. And we keep coming back to Christ for that and to His good news, never running back to the law. If you were to go out today and go have some fun in our local pluff mud, if you're a visitor, uh, the pluff mud is the squishy, smelly stuff that's over there at low tide. And it's really cool and it's fun to play in and all of that. But it is stinky and it's dark and it's hard to get out. So if you're playing in the pluff mud and you go home today and you look in the mirror, what is the mirror going to indicate about you if you're covered from head to toe in pluff mud? It's simply going to tell you that you're dirty. That's the function of a mirror. It's to point out the spots. It's to point out the image. Well, that's what the law is for. The law points out our sin. The law is that which shows us that we have fallen short of the glory of God, that we have aimed, our aim is too low sometimes, uh, that we have gone our own way. And so the law shows us our sinfulness. And so if we want to be transformed and you want to be cleaned from all of the pluff mud that you have all over your body and all over your clothes, what would any reasonable person do? They would reach up, grab the mirror, and rub their bodies with the mirror, right? Of course you wouldn't. But if you wouldn't do that in day-to-day -day life, why in the world do we do that in the Christian life? That the law shows us our sin, but yet as Christians, so often we go and try to take the law and say, this law is going to cleanse me. No, the law shows me my need of a cleansing agent, which is Christ Jesus. For the law is the pedagogos, which leads us. It is the servant which takes us to the teacher. It's the law that leads us to Christ. And it's Christ and His work within us that cleanses us day to day, moment by moment, as Paul wrote, glory to glory of transforming us in this. So what do you need to do and what do I need to do? I need to continue to preach the gospel to my heart. I need to continue to go to God's Word and see that beauty and allow it to work within me in that transformation that is taking place. And one of the areas that we would see uh, that transformation take place is in the area of what we worship and celebrate. We live in a society that celebrates things. We were designed, by the way, uh, to worship something that is part of your DNA. All humanity is worshiping something. So you can say, well, I'm not, I don't worship anything. Well, no, you're worshiping something. You just need to identify what it is. And the Lord says that when we come into relationship with Him, He becomes the object of our celebration. We would write this on our papers here this way. We are drawn into the beauty of God in celebration, both corporately and privately. 
We celebrate that our God is the great and glorious center of all things. We were made for him and our lives find true meaning in him. All have sinned against God, yet by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are restored to him as his children. As we lift our voice, hearts, voices, and hands together, we grow together, both by our expressive acts of worship and by the transformation we receive through his word. That's how we understand this celebration. And so with that, I want us to go to First Chronicles chapter 16. David has been told he can't build the temple, as we've studied previously, but he is building a tabernacle. He is building a tent where the Ark of the Covenant, which was the box that was carried around, uh, which housed uh, some of the ancient relics, as it were, of the Ten Commandments and other things there, and was a place where the people came and they worshipped God somehow in his very uh, presence there. Now David says these words, And they brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent uh, that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. He anointed some of the Levites as ministers uh, before the ark of the Lord to invoke and to thank and to praise the God of Israel. Invocation, thanksgiving, praise, all of those component parts. And it says that these men came and they played harps and lyres and cymbals and they blew trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. And he said, and I'll give you the song to sing. And it's Psalm 105. And then he added to it here. He said, I'll give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous work that he has done. His miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel, an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion over your inheritance when you were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Then he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. 
For his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God, of our salvation. And gather and deliver us from among the nations. That we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. You ever wondered what it would be like to ask David about his relationship with God? To walk up to David and say, David, maybe in his latter years, maybe in his mid-age, maybe as a youth, and simply say, David, tell me about your relationship with the God of Israel. Well, you know, Bill, that's a private matter and it's not something to be discussed in the public forum. Politics, religion, we don't talk about such things. No, I think David would have gone, Oh my God! This God who took me as a little boy when I was a shepherd and the least of my brothers, and He took me and I was anointed king over Israel, and I went and I was serving Him, and I defeated Goliath in His name, and I saw the power of God come down and defeat the enemies of God, and great victory was given to Him, and I saw His hand of protection upon me all of my life, and yet He set me in this place, and I was king, and yet I fell into deep and profound sin And I committed these heinous acts, but God took my feet and placed them upon a rock. And He washed me clean. And He took hyssop and He cleansed me. Oh, it was a beautiful thing. You mean this God? You mean this incredible God who formed all of the heavens? And when I consider His handiwork, oh, what am I? But I'm a little lower than the angels and I've been crowned with glory. You mean this God? He's not private. And my celebration of Him cannot be contained within me. How about you? If I ask you about your relationship with God, what would you say? Folks, when you've encountered Christ and your life has been transformed by Christ and is being transformed by Christ, you begin to burst forth in praise about this God. When you recognize, oh, when I see the cost of what it took for God to love me in Christ, all I can do is worship Him. And so I come in and every week, God, in the midst of a busy week, you gather your people together in this special place called the church. And we gather together and with one voice we lift up praises to you in some way to remind us that we're not alone in this and to echo into a culture that needs to hear that there's a God on his throne and we worship him so I guess the question then becomes are you expressing your praise is there something in you that is worthy of praise David David didn't just begin to praise he exploded into praise Look at how many times there's an exclamation point. If this was an email or a text, you'd be like, chill out! This scroll was in all caps. Psalm 105 is all caps, bold, with exclamation points, because David couldn't contain himself. And he said, this is a song to be sung by God's people, because they shouldn't contain themselves either. Folks, celebration comes 
And it is expressed when we understand the beauty of who this God is. And I don't have time to go into it. But it's this covenant-keeping, faithful God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You will run after other gods. You'll go after less wild lovers. But I will always be with you. I am faithful to my promises. I will never break them. I took a vow by my own name. And there is no name above my name. And I will keep my vow to you that you will be my people and I will be your God and I will never let go of you. Paul, the same way, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Can death? Can height? Depth? Anything in this world separate us? Do you think he said that calmly? Or was it an expression when you come to 1 Corinthians 15 and he said, oh death, where's your sting? He's mocking death. And he's saying, this God that I serve, this faithful covenant-keeping God, has welled up within me a murderer of your people. Has welled up within me a praise and a celebration that I can't contain, and we shouldn't contain it either. So if you're not seeing worship and celebration much in your life, find out why. What are the barriers that are there? Is it your pride? That we don't want to admit and recognize our helplessness in the gospel? That we want to be able to do it ourselves? Is it a false humility that we think that boasting too much is wrong? David was a fool before the ark, dancing. For he said, I can't boast enough about my God. Or is it an idolatry that you've given your praise to something else? Our purpose is to praise the Lord. Verse 35, God saved us, He gathered us, He's delivered us, that we would give thanks to His holy name and glory in your praise. That's what we do. And so we see Him in this way of celebration. And quickly to touch on this other thing that we want to see, another trait that we want to see developed within your life as you are here at Hilton Head Prez and as you go somewhere else to see these things developed is that of service that we strive to embody our faith locally and around the world and offer the hope of Christ to our neighbors in word and deed. The Bible teaches us that by intentional stewardship of time, talent, and treasure, Christians bring nothing less than a foretaste of the kingdom of God into reality within their given community. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11, but verse 10, uh, specifically in 11, say this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever. And in Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, they're in Babylon, and his Lord says, I've sent you to Babylon, now build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply and do not increase, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You see, when we understand how God has served us through Christ, and Christ now living in us. His mission hasn't changed. Just because Christ has now taken up residence within your heart, don't think that His mission has changed. His mission is the same. It's to serve others through you. 
It's to see that develop now in you and in me that we would serve the needs of others, that he has gifted us with gifts. Sorry to take this one away from you if you've done a spiritual gifts inventory and you came up short on the service part. Right there it says, to those whom he's gifted, and that's all of us by the way, we serve. Service is one of those gifts that all of us have. That if Christ again is in us, he deacons us, he serves us, then we go and serve others. And we serve with these gifts by the power of God in the place where we have been set. There, God's people are in Babylon, a pagan city, a pagan culture. We're not in Babylon, but we're sojourners in a world and in a city and in a place that's not our own. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we're here for a season. And while we're here, it isn't to isolate ourselves from the culture around us, but by proclaiming Christ through our service of the culture to the ultimate end to see others come to faith in the King, but also through that to serve their needs. And somehow, I don't have time to go into it, our welfare is tied to the welfare of the communities in which we live. That it's important for us to care for the needs of those who are around us while we're exiles, while we're not home. It's so important that in Ezekiel there's a shocking passage. For if you consider Sodom and Gomorrah, and you think, ah, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were destroyed because of their filth, because of their immorality, because of all of their moral failings. That was a part of it, but listen to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. Could be said of another nation that we live in. But they did not aid the poor and the needy. God is saying this, I have such a care and a compassion for those who have needs that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed in part because they did not take what I had given them and serve the needs of those who were around them. The ultimate aim of the gospel of ministry within the church is to see many come to faith in Christ. And one of the ways that we do that is by serving the needs of others. It's not the end, but it is a result of what we do And serving takes place both within the church, that's the ministry of the deacons, which we want to see expanded over time, of caring for one another, of living life together, but it's serving also the needs outside of the church. And by the way, this doesn't come naturally. This isn't just happen. I doubt too many of us uh, this morning uh, woke up and went, how can I subordinate my hopes, wants, and desires to the hopes, wants, and desires of everyone who's around me. That just comes naturally, doesn't it? Because marriage is easy that way. Relationship is easy that way. Parenting is easy that way. Uh, Being a son or a daughter in a home is easy that way because it comes naturally to us to look at somebody else and go, how can I serve your needs above my own? How easy is that? Of course not. We don't live in that world. We have the biggest problem that you have in the relationships in which you're in is you. And the biggest problem with you and the biggest problem with me is this. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and selfish in that way. And I want what I want, how I want it, when I want it. Lisa. (laughs) And guess what she wants? What she wants, how she wants it, when she wants it, Bill. 
And when you've got two people looking at each other going, serve my needs, finish me, complete me, do all of this to me, you're going to have a problem. But if Christ is there and He has served your needs and you know that you are fully completed in Him and filled by Him and you know that your reputation doesn't matter and you can die to your own needs and subordinate them uh, to someone else, you can then say, how can I serve you and not use you? But how can I love you and do that? So how does this happen? How does this happen? Let's go back and end where we started. It happens by beholding Christ. This transformation, this celebration, this service, this renewal, uh, this deep community, all of that takes place because it says there in 2 Corinthians 3 that beholding the glory of God. Beholding is different from noticing. Saturday as I do on so many wedding opportunities, I get the best place in the house right next to the groom. And I get to stand by him as he looks for his bride. And every groom, who should be a groom, and if he's not, we have deeper problems, but every groom on that day should be pining away, looking for his bride to come. And Saturday was no different. Standing next to my oldest son and seeing uh, as all of uh, the congregation stood and the doors had opened in the back. And she was blocked because she's tiny and you couldn't see her. And Will was there looking and she came in and she turned and his chest went out and his shoulders went back and he beheld his bride. He was allowing it to indelibly mark his being. Of saying, I never want to forget this moment. Because in this moment, my life will be forever changed. I am not my own. I am now merged with another into a new person. And standing next to him, they will deny it, both of them, were his brothers weeping as they saw Big Brother looking at his bride and realizing that this bully in the house was now going to be a loving, godly husband to this beautiful woman and start a new home. And I just beheld it all. And were changed by it. How do you behold Christ? Do you see Him in that way? My invitation to you is to go look at him today consider him see him walking towards you and allow your life to be transformed by the beauty of this king who happens to be the lover of your soul the creator of your life and the sustainer of your eternity let's pray father we thank you for your goodness to us thank you for the gospel that we are transformed. And if there are any here today who have not turned to you to be saved, would they turn today? Would they come and see you and give their life to you fully? And then would you begin that work of sanctifying them and transforming them day by day? Fathers, for others of us who have walked with you for many years, I pray that we would never take our eyes off of you. That we would keep beholding you and keep being changed into your image moment by moment and glory by glory. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.